Hello, this is Dean Hess, editor of Respiratory Care. Welcome to the August 2017 podcast. The study by Lee and colleagues evaluated the safety and effectiveness of a rapid flow expulsion maneuver to clear subglottic secretions. They conducted both an in vitro and an in vivo study and found that the rapid flow expulsion maneuver was safe and effective to clear subglottic secretions. The first maneuver was the most effective to expel the majority of secretions. Supine position and high peak flow improved the clearance efficiency. Lamb and Kreiner suggest that a rapid flow expulsion maneuver could potentially add to the clinician's arsenal of options to remove subglottic secretions not removed by other modalities. To be determined will be the effectiveness and impact on important clinical outcomes when using this maneuver to clear subglottic secretions. Kelly et al. assessed the severity of hypoxemia and other factors that influence the response to aerosolized prostacycline in subjects with ARDS. Mean PaO2, FiO2, increased by 33 millimeters of mercury on initiation of aerosolized prostacycline with a responder rate of 62%. A favorable response was most strongly associated with baseline PaO2, FiO2, and respiratory system compliance. As pointed out by Attaway and colleagues, the absence of mortality data brings into question the relevance of the improvement in PaO2, FiO2. The heterogeneity of ARDS and its complex management strategies complicate evaluation of salvage therapies. The critical endpoint is mortality, but in the interim, evaluation of important surrogate endpoints, such as significant reductions in FiO2, decrease in the use or intensity of other salvage therapies, or need for ECMO, might add important information. In a retrospective cohort study of subjects admitted to a tertiary children's hospital, pediatric ICU, Coletti et al. evaluated the utilization of high-flow nasal cannula. High-flow nasal cannula was utilized in 27% of all PICU admissions for a wide range of indications. The primary indications for the utilization of high-flow nasal cannula were status asthmaticus, status asthmaticus with pneumonia, and bronchiolitis. The authors suggest that protocols should be developed for the initiation, escalation, and weaning of high-flow nasal cannula to optimize utilization. In their editorial, Bowden and Poyal recognized that, with greater comfort, simplicity, and probably effectiveness, high-flow nasal cannula has succeeded in finding the favor of pediatric intensivists and respiratory therapists. However, it now requires a more convincing level of evidence from randomized controlled trials in the pediatric ICU. Creasy and colleagues evaluated a quality improvement initiative to reduce unplanned extubations in a neonatal ICU. The development of standard guidelines to prevent unplanned extubations and a quality review process to track unplanned extubations resulted in important information for education and practice change. These changes significantly improved the unplanned extubation rate through improved teamwork, accountability, and communication. 
The study by Vitality et al. compared the efficacy and safety of two non-invasive respiratory support methods, helmet CPAP and high-flow nasal cannula, in children with respiratory distress admitted to the PICU. They found that both CPAP and high-flow nasal cannula were efficient in improving the clinical condition of subjects with mild to moderate respiratory distress. Clinical response to CPAP was more efficient and rapid than high-flow nasal cannula. The goal of the study by Raymond and colleagues was to pilot test a simple telephone-based health coaching intervention that was shown to decrease readmission among subjects with COPD. They found that a telephone-delivered motivational interviewing-based coaching program for COPD subjects was feasible, well accepted by both subjects and providers, simple, and a novel intervention to improve the well-being of subjects with COPD. This pilot study improves insight into a possible alternative to an on-site pulmonary rehabilitation program for patients with limited access to that program. The GLITTER ADL test is proposed to evaluate the functional capacity of patients with COPD. The objective of the study by Sousa et al. was to compare the metabolic, ventilatory, and cardiac requirements and time taken to carry out the GLITTER ADL test in subjects with mild, moderate, and severe COPD. They found that as the degree of airflow obstruction progresses, subjects with COPD present significantly lower ventilatory reserve to perform the GLITTER ADL test. Metabolic and cardiac reserves may differentiate the more severe subjects. Perhaps these variables are better outcomes to differentiate functional performance of the GLITTER ADL test. The study by Montes de Oca et al. evaluated the exposure to biomass and smoking on COPD risk in a primary care setting from Latin America. Subjects with COPD from primary care had a higher exposure to biomass and smoking compared to subjects without COPD. Smoking and biomass were both risk factors for COPD, but they did not appear to have an additive effect. Tom Basio and colleagues evaluated the effects of the flutter valve on sputum inflammation, microbiology, and transport of respiratory secretions in subjects with bronchiectasis. The use of the flutter valve 30 minutes per day for at least four weeks was enough to change physical properties and improve mucus transport by coughing. It also contributed to the reduction of the number of inflammatory cells of the respiratory secretions of subjects with bronchiectasis. The aim of the study by Lee and colleagues was to identify laboratory parameters that are correlated with the bronchiectasis severity score and facet score. Several laboratory variables were identified as possible prognostic factors for non-cystic fibrosis bronchiectasis. Among them, the serum albumin level exhibited the strongest correlation and was identified as an independent variable associated with the bronchiectasis severity index and facet scores. Smallwood et al. assessed a possible mechanism by which the activity of exogenous pulmonary surfactant is adversely affected by direct oxygen exposure in in vitro experiments. 
The characteristics of pulmonary surfactant were adversely affected by short-term exposure to oxygen. Specifically, surface tension studies revealed that short-term exposure of surfactant film to high concentrations of oxygen expedited the frangibility of pulmonary surfactant as shown with the surface area change. This suggests that reductions in pulmonary compliance and associated adverse effects could begin to take effect in a very short period of time. If these findings can be demonstrated in vivo, a role for reduced FiO2 during exogenous surfactant delivery may have a beneficial benefit. The aim of the study by Osu and colleagues was to investigate the possible value of the serum levels of uric acid in predicting 30-day pulmonary thromboembolism-related mortality. They found that serum uric acid level was an independent predictor of short-term mortality in pulmonary thromboembolism. This suggests that serum uric acid levels may be a potential biomarker for predicting outcome in patients with acute pulmonary thromboembolism. In addition to the original research, this month we also publish an invited review on gas exchange in the prone position. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.